Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today we have with us Dr. Rhoda Oh. She's from Boston University. Um, I'm really excited to have her here today. I've been following um, Rhoda's work. Uh, she's looking into um, how we detect Alzheimer's uh, or a decline in cognition long before symptoms appear. She's using um, digital biomarkers, um, to, um, getting a lot of exciting data uh, to see whether there's signs in our voice or how we write to indicate um, cognitive decline. Uh, Rhoda, thanks very much for joining us and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's first start about how much we know today um, about really lifestyle and um, how much we can detect, um, um, how much cognitive decline we can detect before there's ever a symptom. Sure. So we talk about sort of lifestyle risk factors. Um, we certainly know that uh, um, at least the research seems to suggest that modifiable lifestyle risk factors are in fact related to later life uh, changes in the brain, uh, both in terms of cognitive function and in terms of brain structure. And I think what, how we can sort of couch this is, you know, I work with the Framingham Heart Study, which started as a study of heart disease and stroke. And what we've sort of learned over the years is what's bad for the heart is bad for the brain. So if we think about sort of these lifestyle risk factors in terms of heart health and then and realize that there's that connection right to the brain, then that starts to uh, bridge the link between, you know, what we do in our daily lives and those choices that we make in terms of lifestyle and how that's affecting us systemically from our heart to the brain. Um, in terms of our ability to detect cognition uh, earlier, I think that there's where we're at right now, and I think that there's where we're going to be, because I think that the traditional tools, uh, I think that technology is allowing them to be a lot more sensitive than they have been in the past. Okay, so I want to just talk a little bit first before we get into the di digital tools. I want to talk about that that saying, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Uh, we hear that all the time. I can't, you know, num uh, numerous researchers have said that. What does that actually mean, though? What, why, what is the relationship between our heart health and, uh, and our brain health? So at least in the research that we've been doing at Framingham and that others have done similarly, is that we've been, uh, we've been able to actually take a lot of the factors that we see that impact the, the heart and then look to see if they also, uh, we see a relationship with the brain. And so consequently, uh, that's where we're getting that sort of idea of the heart to brain connection is because we're seeing the same factors that are associated with say heart disease, you know, greater risk for heart disease, et cetera. We're seeing those same kinds of relationships related to the brain. So for example, um, what, what are like high, high blood pressure, what impact would that have on my brain? So for instance, well, if you think about, for instance, the fact that the heart is plump, pumping blood to the brain, right? So if you have high blood pressure and you're affecting your heart's ability to function at the, its normal level, then you have to think about where's the, where's the supply? Where's the food supply for the brain? Well, it's actually coming through the heart, right? So that's how, that's how we think about that heart to brain connect. 
So um, when, what is it that the, um, what type of information did we get from the Framingham, or do we continue to get from the Framingham study um, that is, that tells us about lifestyle and diagnosis? Sure, so just as a reminder for maybe some people who don't know, the Framingham Heart Study started out in 1948 with an original cohort of over 5,000 participants in the town of Framingham. And then in 1971, their children and their children's spouses were brought into the study, and then their grandchildren were also brought in in 2002. And um, when Framingham was uh, first started, we actually didn't know what were the causes of heart disease and stroke. And so, uh, so the NIH had launched Framingham as a 20-year study to see if we could make, find those determinants. And so what happened is through Framingham, we did actually define, not me, obviously myself, but um, our, the early researchers, founders of this uh, project, uh, were able to identify all the cardiovascular risk factors that we take for granted today. So if you think about when you go to the doctor's office, you get your blood pressure measured, you get your weight measured, you get your cholesterol measured, you know, they ask you if you have smoking, they're looking at diabetes, et cetera. Those are all things that we have within the Framingham Heart Study determine are related to heart disease and stroke, right? And so those are factors that we try to mediate. Well, now it turns out, if you look at the literature, we're starting to say, oh, but people with diabetes are at higher risk for you know, for dementia. People with high blood pressure are higher risk for blood, but, you know, and so it just goes down. So it's the same path, right? It's the same relationship. I think that that's what we have to say. Um, and so if, so that's where we sort of get this idea that, uh, and that's where Framingham has really contributed, I think, in allowing us to make that connection um, in a much stronger way. So you've now focused um, on how do we detect cognitive decline long before we are in a symptomatic stage, right? Um, why is that information today so important in terms of Alzheimer's disease? Mm -hmm. So if we think about Alzheimer's disease at this point, there are no effective treatments, drug treatments today. And so what we think is, well, maybe the reason why is because by the time we're detecting that disease, it's too late in its course for intervention to be um, effective. So if we think about cancer for as, an, as a model, if you have stage four, stage five cancer, then that, you know, our ability to find effective interventions is much less, right? But, but if we can detect the, the um, cancer in stage one, stage two, even precancerous, right? That's where interventions are much more effective. And so that's really what the belief is within Alzheimer's disease. So what we have to remember is when someone has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, it's not like the day before, the week before, the month before, the year before, even five years before, they were normal. They've actually been on this path. This is an insidious onset disease that, that you know, is very gradual in its progression. And so right now, the idea is, is given that it's that insidious onset, why should we wait until you hit a certain level, threshold, where we diagnose disease? Why don't we try to then catch that insidious onset much earlier on? But now to do that, we're talking about much more subtle changes in cognition than you would think about when you have disease. And that's why we have to think about, hmm, if we know it's coming on, how are we gonna find tools to actually detect that 
at that point? So interestingly enough, um, we've had many people on being patients say, you know, in hindsight, um, an earlier stage, um, I remember with my own mom, um, she picked us up from the airport and she's been driving that route for forever and took the wrong turn and got totally lost. And this yep. was years before, years and years before. And I hear that same story repeated over yep. and over again, you know? And so, yep. so what, what, but to me, I'm wondering, okay, so what if that point, and that was years before she ever had a diagnosis. Um, what if we knew that? Why would that really make a difference? Is, is, do you believe um, that we, science should focus on intervention at that point in the, you know, pharma, intervention, medicine, or is it really lifestyle that can kick the can down the road um, and prevent us from going into a symptomatic state? So I think that those are probably two different stages. So one is, can we detect it much earlier on where there, before there's uh, advanced neurological uh, damage? Because I think that once the damage is there, it's very difficult to reverse course. So the question is, is if we can sort of pick it up much earlier on, maybe some of these drugs that aren't as effective in the later stages will be much more effective in the earlier stages. But when we talk about modifiable lifestyle risk factors, I think about that more in the stage of even pre-symptomatic. I think this is about, rather than focusing on the concept of treating disease, I think we're really talking and, and, and getting away actually from the concept of disease. I think what we really are thinking about is how do we optimize your brain health, right? And, and so I think that when we start to focus on just, oh, preventing Alzheimer's disease, I think that's very scary. And I think that what we should be thinking about is I really want to optimize my brain health. And why do I want to do that? Because everything I do as a person, I do through my brain. And so in order to be my optimized self, I want to have the best brain that I can have. And, and for me, that, that shifts the, the discussion from thinking about, oh, I'm trying to prevent this disease down the path. And it really puts it in the moment of, let me maximize what I have right now. And what is it I can do in my lifestyle to make that best? You know, in terms of eating, in terms of um, sleeping, which is usually the under-recognized risk factors for all, you know, for um, declining uh, cognitive health, right? Exercise, you know, all the things that we know about. If we're really focused on not so much something downstream that we're not really sure about, but in the moment today of like, I just need to bring my best brain, right, every day. I think that that's a better way to think about it, you know. So what you're doing digitally is, um, let's start first with the voice recognition. Tell us a little bit about that study and, and some of the findings so far. Sure, so, um, so what happened was is in my search, uh, for uh, finding a better way to assess people. What happens when you're giving a neuropsychological test? You know, you ask people questions and they're responding to it. And usually what you're doing is you're looking for them to give you a correct response. And that's what we record and that's what we give you a score. But it turns out when you test people, they give you lots of responses. Some that are correct and some that are less so. 
But, and what I realized is that there's a richness in their response, right? And this is actually not something that I discovered, it's actually something that was really championed by a neuropsychologist, clinical neuropsychologist in Boston, uh, Edith Kaplan. And she had really uh, promoted the idea of what we call the Boston process approach. So it's not about what was your final response, it's how did you get to that response? And so what she used to say is, is like we have a, a, a test called the block design and we ask you to you know, create um, figures with that. And she says that you know, if, you, if you create the figure in a wrong way, you get a score of zero. But if the person is eating the blocks, they still get a, a score of zero. And clearly those are two people in two very different states, right? So she really trained us to think about how do you get to that response? So what happened was is that, all right, I wanna, I wanna capture all these people's responses, but you can't actually write it down when people are saying it. So I realized I have to record them. I have to record them so that I can go back and capture all those responses. And so I actually accidentally created the voice recording because I was really there trying to figure out what are all those other things that they're saying? And I wasn't thinking about, oh, the voice itself could be diagnostic, right? And so what happened was, is we started doing that in 2005. And then when Siri came out, I realized, wow, voice recognition, voice analysis software has become really sophisticated. And I've been recording these people's responses to neuropsychological tasks. And I realized that in and of itself is data. Because when you're thinking about when you, you know, testing people, you can hear differences over time, right? And instead of, so they may still test well, but they're starting to hesitate. They're starting to have more difficulty finding the right word. They might choose a different one, right? So there's lots of strategies people can have. That, that makes them still look like they normally are, but in fact that they're starting to shift. So, um, so we ended up, it took actually a number of years uh, because this is a very new concept. And so uh, I was able to, with Evidation Health and MIT, some colleagues there, we were able to get some funding to do an initial proof of concept study where we're able to take voice recordings from people who were, uh, we knew were cognitively impaired and, and those are people who were not. And we were able to subject that to a bunch of voice analysis, looking at speech to text features, audio qualities like the change in pitch and tone, hesitation, pauses, stutters, you know, fragmented sentences, a whole host of things. And on the basis of using some uh, advanced analytic machine learning um, approaches, we were able to differentiate those people who were cognitively impaired versus those who weren't on the basis of their voice recording. And so that's sort of the initial project we did. So um, how, at what, what determined, um, I, I'm just thinking of the continuum of Alzheimer's disease and you know how we talked about certain symptoms could come through. Is this at a point where you know, they're years away from a symptom of Alzheimer's or what, where, where are you in determining that there is, there are signs, um, can you express it in years before something or is that part of a later study? 
it's still part of a later study. So we only have done the proof of concept study so far. So we have almost 9,000 recordings from 2005 to now. And we only took a subset of 200 recordings. It's actually a fair amount of work uh, to yeah. process these recordings in a proper way for analyses. And so, uh, but what we have done is we have collected some of these recordings longitudinally. And some of those people have progressed to, to Alzheimer's disease. So now we're in a position where we can go back and look at their recordings earlier on to see if we can see some of those signals, uh, you know, that would then separate who goes on to the path of Alzheimer's disease versus not. So that's sort of the stage that we're at now is, uh, you know, quite frankly, you know, I'm a researcher, so I have to get funding for the research that I do. And that's what yeah. we're doing right now is sort of seeking those opportunities to look at it longitudinally. And I think that's where we're gonna start to be able to determine whether we really can find these voice uh, cognitive biomarkers. So when you when you noticed that there were changes, when you talk about the changes in the voice, was it something to do with the tone or was it really the way they were expressing things um, and the, the way that they answered? Like what exactly are you detecting that equates voice with cognitive decline? So right now what we're doing is we're actually finding it's a profile so I think that one of the things is, you know, cognition is a very complex uh, exercise, right? And I don't think that it's the case that you're ever gonna find one measure that, that really reflects people's cognitive capabilities. And so what we did in this voice analysis, for instance, I think that uh, one of the, uh, the highly predictive models was about 256 different features that are a combination. And so we find a lot there's a lot of information just in the audio quality, which is the prosodic features. But then if you add some of the speech to text speech features, like uh, the language features, like the word selections, uh, the number of words, for instance, the complexity of words, you know, things like that, that can sort of add to that. And I think the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that this is really going to be relative to an individual's baseline. So it's very important to have these longitudinal recordings over time so that we can sh see shifts. Because people, everybody has a different way of speaking, you know, and so we can't, it's harder, I think, to compare one person to another person. It's better to sort of compare to their own and see how they're changing across a number of different dimensions. I think that that's really where we need to get. I mean, we have the data, but we have not yet been able to do those analyses. Okay, and then um, the other thing you're doing is using a digital pen, which I find fascinating. Um, and um, I, I know uh, some of your research is, extends to China. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you're looking for in terms of the way people are writing. Sure, so this was, so we started using the digital pen at Framingham in 2011, and we actually started using it with a clock drawing test. And this was actually not something that I developed, these were colleagues at MIT and Leahy uh, who had developed the technology of using the pen and then interpreting the pen strokes that were gathered from this digital pen into uh, derived measures. And in the same way that I talked about looking at the voice, there's lots of, um, there's a lot of indices that you can pick up when you're, when you're tracking that kind of behavior. So for instance, if you think about a clock drawing test, 
we can talk about how long it takes you to draw the clock face, how long it takes you to then, what's the pause between drawing the clock face and then drawing the next thing? That's a decision-making pause, right? So what we're able to do as you're constructing this whole clock is we're able to pick out where you're making decision-making points. And those decision-making latencies, as they get longer, may be a reflection that there are changes going on in your underlying ability to do cognitive processing. So that would be an example. So interestingly, like the clock has always been described to me as layers, right? It's very, yes. com it gets very complex because it's you're drawing different layers and they're not literal. So if you have 10 to two, you know, or, yeah. uh, or yeah. you know, 10 past two, you're, yeah. you're not aiming at those numbers. And so, um, but interestingly, um, one of the things I read that you're doing is you're making people kind of draw in in space, not necessarily only to the paper. Is that right? Yeah, we have been playing around with a Bluetooth pen, and this was with actually colleagues at Tsinghua University, which is the work that we're doing in mainland China. So we're actually interested with a Bluetooth pen. What you're able to do is then detect when the pen is on the paper as well as off the paper. So really we're starting to differentiate sort of what we call, you know, sort of thinking time versus actual drawing time, right? And and um, and extending what we were doing on the paper to when it's off the paper as well. So we can detect things like hovering. So are you holding that pen in the air and thinking? Or are you moving that pen around to figure out where to go next, right? So this just gives us further insight. We like to think about uh, this as giving us a real window into the brain as people are actually doing the, um, the task itself. So let's say in 10, 20 years from now, um, these two studies are very accurate and successful in um, determining cognitive decline um, at a, a much earlier stage. Um, what is it going to look like to go to the doctors and what does that mean to people in terms of precision medicine? Um, what is it that, that the patient or the person will go home with where they feel like, okay, now I have to look into something else? Sure. So if you asked me 10, 20 years ago what, from now what I would like to see what happened, I would actually like to see that a person doesn't have to go to the doctors in the first place. I would like to see a system that allows people to continuously monitor their own behavior. I would like to see um, a feedback mechanism that alerts them uh, to changes that are going on and tells them things like, you need to make sure that you need to eat a little bit this better, you need to sleep a little more, you need a little bit more physical activity. I would actually really like to see some sort of internal feedback loop that a person has that prevents them from having to go to that doctor's office in the first place. So that's what I would really like to envision. And then if, for instance, a person really does go down that trajectory of decline, I would like the doctor to know about it much earlier on and be able to bring them in and say, well, let's try you know, some aggressive interventions right now, and hopefully we will have those effective treatments. Um, that can work at that stage. So that's that's what I hope. 
how much, um, how far away are you from your studies in determining this? Like, so for example, I know the voice is separate from the pen, but how many more years of data would you need to determine this? I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Here, here's what I do know. I know that technology allows us to compress time. And what I hope is that what used to take, so I told you I've been collecting these digital recordings since 2005. And I think that there is an opportunity to look at that data, but I've been doing it since 2005. And uh, I would like to see that it doesn't take, you know, 10, 15 years, that technology, because we're monitoring you so well, we're detecting it much earlier on, right? Much sooner. So I would love to see that this, something like this would actually have real life solution in what I would say the coming years rather than decades. So um, I'm just, I'm, I'm also curious. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that what you're already learning um, and it's it, to imagine the future where, you know, we, we're all just recording. I mean, our voices are being recorded, you know, now, right? And so detecting those differences, but isn't it true that everybody should have a baseline assessment because everyone's memory is different. And so that's part of the trick of really understanding how much decline you've suffered is you need to know where you were when you were normal. Yes. And so we think about people needing to have a brain vital check, right? So you go in and you get your baseline for your heart health, right? You test your kidneys, your liver, et cetera, right? We collect all these biomarkers to get that baseline for you, your cholesterol levels, your blood pressure, et cetera. We don't do it for your brain. And we need to do that for your brain, right? And then that way, we have something to anchor against so that we can say, oh, there is something really happening that's going on that we should be paying attention to. So what, what would we look for? Like, what are some of the, um, when you talk about that, that brain vitality test, um, what is it today that people could measure uh, to help them determine where their brain health is at? I mean, aside from the cognitive testing, um, you know, the MOCA test or whatever, um, what is it, what else should we be looking at? So I don't know that the MOCA test is sensitive enough. So for me, it's about getting a, a, so to me, things like getting your voice recording um, in order to establish sort of baseline measures for yourself and then being able to do that over time and for us to take the metrics that we've seen and be able to map that and track that, I think that's gonna be much more effective. Actually, you know, what I would really like to see eventually is I would actually like to get rid of testing altogether because testing of itself is artificial. And in fact, we, there are lots of things that affect our cognitive capabilities all the time. But because everything we do, we do through our brain, we're always reflecting our cognitive abilities. It's when we you know, eat, socialize, interact, take our medications, we're always reflecting that. And for me, what I'd like to see at some point is that we are actually monitoring our lifestyle behaviors, our various types of behaviors, our natural behaviors. And from that, we're inferring our cognitive capabilities. And I think that that's really what I want to get to in the long run. So it's not about testing cognition. It's about tracking your cognition. 
So um, how do people keep up um, and keep informed about your research? Um, is there a place that they could go um, to see where you're at and, and what the latest information is? Um, well, I'm not really quite sure. It's not like, I mean, you know, we have a little website in terms of that gives us information just about us um, in terms of what we're doing. I guess maybe what I would say is uh, I think the directions that we're taking that and certainly that I've tried to take, I don't know that it's about me. I think that it's about this approach. And what I would say is, is that I don't actually think I'm going to make the big discovery. Here's what I think I'm doing. I think that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to enable a new approach. And I wanna invite the scientific community to embrace this new approach. And then I want us to share the data and I want us to share the data broadly because I actually think the answers that we're looking for are in the data. And we need to bring the best and the brightest data science, artificial intelligence uh, minds all over the world to weigh in on this data and to find these markers that are so critical. Because I think the concept of precision medicine and the precision brain health is you're really about the right solution for the right person at the right time. There is not gonna be just one, and we're all very distinct. So I actually believe that it's not about so much following me as much as it's following this trend. And really what I would ask people to do is really to think about the importance of open science and data sharing, because this is a very, very new complex direction. This is a very complex disease, right? And the concept of digital biomarkers right now is much more concept than it is reality. So how are we going to get there? We're going to get there by letting the scientific community do it rather than just me. So that's what I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think, and I, you know, I think the good news is as we evolve in this whole techno, you know, technology revolution, I think a lot of different areas are gonna converge on the data and, yeah. and insight. Yeah. And so I think we're headed in yeah. that direction. But right. um, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for, for enlightening us. I think this is a fascinating area to keep an eye on. I think you're so right in um, focusing on, you know, where are the earlier signs before we ever, you know, enter a disease state. So we're very appreciative um, uh, of your research and thank you very much for, for um, spending time with us.